Welcome to Acton Line, the podcast of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Eric Cohn, executive producer. Increasingly, people are turning to intermittent fasting to bolster their health. But we aren't the first people to abstain from eating for a purpose. This routine was a common part of our spiritual ancestors' lives for 1,500 years. In his new book, Eat, Fast, Feast, Heal Your Body While Feeding Your Soul, A Christian Guide to Fasting, Jay Richards argues that Christians should recover the fasting lifestyle, not only to improve our bodies, but to bolster our spiritual health as well. He draws upon forgotten insights from the Christian tradition on fasting and feasting, and combines them with the growing body of modern scientific literature on ketogenic diets and fasting for improved physical and mental health, arguing that rethinking our modern diet with an eye towards these ancient insights and new discoveries will lead us to a far more healthy and wholesome lifestyle. Today, Dylan Pommen, research fellow at Acton and executive editor of the Journal of Markets and Morality, talks with Jay Richards about his new book and how Christians can and should recover the fasting lifestyle. You can find additional resources in the show notes for this episode, as well as find previous episodes of Acton Line on our website at acton.org slash actonline. And if you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Acton Line is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. My name is Dylan Pommen. I'm a research fellow here at the Acton Institute and executive editor of our Journal of Markets and Morality. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Jay Richards. Jay is the William E. Simon Senior Research Fellow at the Heritage Foundation in Washington, D.C., He is also a senior fellow at the Discovery Institute, executive editor of The Stream, assistant research professor in the Bush School of Business, and fellow of the Institute for Human Ecology at the Catholic University of America. Jay is author or editor of a dozen books, including, most recently, Eat, Fast, Feast, Heal Your Body While Feeding Your Soul, A Christian Guide to Fasting, which we will be discussing today. Jay, welcome to Act in Line. Dylan, it's great to be with you. So... I love uh, the spiritual tradition of the church. I love asceticism. I have a personal blog where I I talk about it uh, just in my spare time to kind of get away from the policy stuff uh, that we do here. Um, And I often find that even for my own sake, um, Christians and even me personally don't take the time to kind of take a step back and just ask the most basic questions. So I want to start with literally just the very bottom beginning base uh, idea of just what is fasting? How do you understand it? Um, and why'd you write a book about it? Well, fasting most basically is going a period of time without food voluntarily. That's the primary meaning of the word. We use the word in metaphorical senses. Sometimes people, they fast from Facebook or something like that. There's We have a word for that. It's abstinence. But fasting generally involves either the cessation of all food or the cessation of large types of food voluntarily for a period of time. So if you literally are um, 
<laughs> you know, you're not, you don't have access to food at all or something. That's, that's not going to be fasting. That's food deprivation. So it's done, you know, every religious tradition, uh, major religious tradition does it. And so it's also, it's also done for a spiritual practice, but there are also traditions that do it uh, as a health practice, or they don't make the distinction between spiritual and health, and they do it for general purposes of flourishing. But in the, the modern era, um, unfortunately, at least in most traditions, it's mostly dropped out except for a couple of symbolic acts of fasting. Yeah, so people fast during or give up something for Lent, right? That's still a common practice. Um, so what are some so what are some common misconceptions about fasting? Uh, where do people go wrong? Well, I would say the biggest modern misconception is that fasting is actually bad for you. Um, mm. th this is the worry that, you know, I mean, in fact, I was, you know, I did strength training in college and would put people on workout plans. And there, this idea, I'm not sure where it started, was that uh, you're, you're healthiest if you're eating lots of small meals throughout the day very frequently. So little meals, somehow it, it keeps your blood sugar from spiking. Your body won't go into starvation mode. So you'll tend to preserve lean muscle mass and, and use fat for fuel. That was kind of the idea. Um, and so in the modern area, people often think, well, you know, we all were, most of us were raised being told breakfast is the most important meal of the day. You're going to not be able to function and say, if you don't have breakfast. And so this idea that it might be just fine to go a significant amount of time without eating anything, that just seems sort of counterintuitive. And so you might think, okay, well, I need to do this as a spiritual sacrifice, but I'm doing it to the detriment of my health. And so I honestly think in asking people about this before I was writing the book, this is a common idea. In fact, it's even common among religious sisters, for instance, who, you know, fast. I thought I was going to interview Dominicans and I'd interview uh, Jesuits and lay people and Eastern Orthodox people. And, um, and I was talking to some sisters, I won't say what, what order they're in. And they said, oh, yeah, we fast. And I said, oh, well, so describe your fasting regimen in your, in your community. And she said, well, we fast an hour before mass. And then, you know, we do the smaller meals on Ash Wednesday and Good Friday. <laughs> I said, no, yeah. I mean, what about the kind of the real fast where you go a whole day or go a couple of days? And she said, oh, no, we all teach during the day. And so we would not have the energy if we did that. And this is, I mean, it's funny, but even very religious people, religious Christians have sort of imbibed this idea that we can't do it. And a lot of that is, of course, it, that that's consonant with our experience. But my argument in the book is that we have this experience of flagging after a few hours, primarily because of the way we eat and because our bodies have gotten used to eating all the time. And it's, it's not at all a necessity. In fact, I think you do better if we don't do that long term. Um, okay, so uh, this is related, and you've already you've already kind of answered this question, but I think there's probably more to it. Um, why don't more people fast? So, I mean, that's the, the maybe the most common misconception is they're worried about it being unhealthy. But uh, you also mentioned it's so common in so many historic religious traditions. And yet, at least in the United States of America, where we live, uh, or maybe in the West in general, it's just not something that, that at very least, it's not popular. Um, but it just, it, it doesn't even seem very common, right? No, it's. That's right. And I think, I mean, the, there is the obvious answer, which is that fasting is a sacrifice and we like to eat, you know? Yeah. But of yeah. course, that's not anything new. People have always liked to eat. And in fact, if anything, we have much greater food abundance now than at any time in history. And so it's or, none of us, frankly, you know, in the West, I mean, at least very few of us are ever in a situation where we're literally starving. Um, and so we, we are accustomed to eating. And I think that's actually the primary culprit is that 
we are creatures of habit. And so if your habit, either by necessity or by religious practice, is that there are periods of time when you eat modestly, there are periods of time when you feast and you eat a lot, and then there are periods of time where you don't eat, either because it's winter and there's so little food that everybody just has to kind of make a little bit of food go a long ways, or because you have a fasting season, your body adjusts to that, just like it would adjust if you ran one mile for a week and two miles the next week, and you work your way all the way up to being able to run a marathon or even an ultra marathon by adapting. And because we eat so frequently, it's just hard, much, much harder to fast than it would be otherwise. And then the third reason is because of the composition of our diets. And I'm absolutely convinced that metabolically, because we almost exclusively use the, uh, the, the metabolic pathway that converts carbohydrates to sugars in our bodies. And it does that very well, but because of the types of foods we eat, highly refined, um, you know, simple carbohydrates, lots and lots and lots of sugar. I mean, ahistorical amounts of sugar compared to <laughs> right. history. Um, that, that, that favors this particular metabolic pathway that needs to be fed very, very frequently. Whereas in fact, we are hybrids. Our bodies can use fat for fuel uh, and convert them to these fuels called ketones, or it can convert carbohydrates to sugars. The problem is if you have sugar coming in, your body doesn't use that, that ketone pathway. It just sits in the back. It's like you have a hybrid car, but you never actually use the gas in the tank. You just constantly recharge the battery. Um, and I'm convinced that because of the way people normally lived for most of history, in which they didn't always have wheat thins and granola bars and protein shakes available 24-7, your body was naturally metabolically flexible. So you could use both those metabolic pathways. And if you're doing that, as I discovered and explained in the book, fasting, it's still something you have to do. It's still a sacrifice, but it's not torture. And so God often calls us to sacrifice goods, things that are goods, but they're not ultimate goods. Um, he rarely asks us to torture ourselves. I mean, yeah. praying, for instance, praying or in the morning, every morning, taking time to pray, that can be a type of sacrifice. But I say, if you know, if every time you prayed, you got nauseated and sick and passed out, I wouldn't say, well, pray harder. I would say, okay, there's something happening here. Yeah. That's a problem. That's not, it's yeah. supposed to be a sacrifice. It's not supposed to be torture. Yeah. I, the, the, the fat versus uh, carbs distinction, uh, I, I promised a friend I would make at least one Fast and the Furious reference. And I, I think of it in terms of, you know, you mentioned cars, you know, maybe you got to kick on the nitro sometime to win the yeah. race, right? You know, and, and that's that's uh, what the fasting does for you. It allows you to kick on that nitro for the spiritual uh, strength that you need. Absolutely. And if your body does that, that's what happens. If, you, if your body is metabolically flexible and you don't have food coming in at all, your body first uses up the sugar, the glycogen, which is the way we store glucose, which is sugar in our, in our liver and in our muscles. You use that up and then your liver starts converting fats to ketones. If you don't have any food coming in, it converts your body fat to ketones. And that is a kind of a leveling experience. You feel a mental clarity from it. Um, if you do it for a few days, you sort of lose the regular cycles of hunger that you normally have. But the vast majority of people don't even know that because they never actually tap into that. And so this is why I thought, why do I write a book on this? It's to combine what we now know about the physiological effects of fasting with the spiritual tradition of fasting, which I think was a serious mistake to our both our physical and certainly our spiritual health to give up. Yeah. So this leads me perfectly to my next question is just what are the spiritual benefits of fasting? 
almost anything that you can think of. And so um, at least if you just look at the early church, that sort of early church practice, fasting and praying always seem to go together. And of course, there's this, this mysterious passage in the Gospels where some disciples go out and they're, they seem to be trying to exercise demons. And they come back and they say, well, you know, that doesn't seem to be working. And Jesus says, well, that kind comes out only by prayer and fasting. And the, the text is there's mysteries around its origin and all that stuff. But the point is, is that there seems to be the implication that that prayer plus fasting amplifies in some way the regular effects of praying. Now, I don't have any theory about why exactly that is, but if you read the church fathers, they all talk about this. They say it strengthens mm -hmm. the body, it strengthens the mind, it arms you for battle against Satan, it, it suppresses uh, concupiscence, it suppresses uh, our, our sort of sinful tendencies, and that's sort of commonsensical, right? If you, It's a type of, of spiritual and physical discipline that's going to spill over in other places. So really almost anything you can think of, if you think of as a purpose for praying, it's also a purpose for fasting because these things go together. And that was that was the just general, that was the consensus view of Christians for most of Christian history. And so that's why it's just so mysterious that it's not like we just dropped praying, but we right. just dropped fasting. Now I say we, I'm talking mainly about uh, Western Catholics and Protestants, where it's dropped out. That yeah, I talk in the book about the Eastern traditions, Eastern Rite churches and Eastern Orthodox churches, which have a much more robust fasting tradition that has been largely retained. And so that's the that's ob the obvious exception to that. And so I just said, you know, I said, look, you know, if we're wondering what to do, let's look. Okay, what are Orthodox Christians doing? Yeah. That's a good place to start. <laughs> Yeah, and that's been my, I'm I've been Orthodox for for twelve years now. It's been most of my experience has come from becoming Orthodox. I did a little bit of uh, total fasts occasionally, as as some evangelicals might do, just kind of sporadically. But making it a habit, uh, embracing more of a, a moderate ascetic fast, and maybe cutting out a meal, cutting out certain aspects of the diet, usually meat, dairy, that sort of thing, uh, on particular days of the week, uh, Wednesdays and Fridays, Lent, that sort of thing. Um, and I, I've noticed amazing benefits. And it's the sort of thing that it kind of creeps up on you. Like, you know, you start out Lent and it's annoying and it's hard. And especially when you have kids, it's, you know, I'm, I'm, I settle for like, well, vegetarian's good enough for, you know, whatever to, cause they, they need their mac and cheese or whatever. So, uh, not quite at the point where I can get back to my, my bachelor days of fasting, but, uh, but still by the time I get to Holy week, I'm like, oh no, it's almost done. Right. Mm -hmm. Like I, I've, I've come to love it. I've come to, to get so much benefit from it. One of my theories I have, and I don't have a good, uh, I, I certainly have not found a, a church father or, uh, you know, theologian who explicitly says, well, here's how fasting and prayer help each other, right? Yeah. Uh, but one, one theory I have is that, well, fasting helps us detach from material things. Material, the material world is not bad at all, uh, right. but helps us appreciate them in part by detaching from them, realizing that, what we thought was a necessity is not, as you said. You can go a day without eating. Uh, most people can, um, and you'll be fine. Um, and you realize, oh, I I get grumpy and angry when I'm when I haven't had breakfast, right? And that's kind of silly. That's on me. That's not. That's not that. Oh no, I didn't get my food. It's I made a bad decision about how to react to that. So it detaches us, uh, you know, from the material world. And then prayer, of course, is turning our mind. To God, so it's kind of the other side of the coin, right? It's turning our our minds to heaven. So it's it's almost you know 
Um, the, the, the Hebrew word for repentance is shuv. It's, it's literally to turn around. And it's, I think, a, an incredible tool in that, that you put prayer and fasting together, and it really helps reorient your whole perspective on life. You know, I think um, in, in many ways, I mean, we're bodily creatures. And so it's, it's easy for us to, uh, to reduce prayer to a purely mental act, uh, mm-hmm. kind of a sort of abstract thing. But if you're fasting, your metabolism—I <laughs> mean, this yeah. most basic physical thing—is a part of your spiritual practice, and so it's it's the recognition of our bodiliness, but also of our need to be able to turn away from you know the the, the this kind of day to day bodily needs at the same time. And so it's, I, I think you're exactly right. I think that that's some part of what's going on, at least. Yeah, maybe we can rebrand it as praying with your stomach. Exactly. <laughs> 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 So uh, speaking of our physical bodily side, what are the physical benefits of fasting? This is something that uh, is, is a heavy focus in your book, um, and I was a little surprised to see that, but, but I think it's, it's a great point. Um, it's the sort of thing that I actually, in my own experience, have tried to downplay, and maybe wrongly so, that I try to tell people, well, you know, fasting is it's not about the physical side. There might be some benefits or not, but you're not, it's not a diet, right? It's about, it's about your spiritual life. But things have changed even in just the last 10 years of people talking about the, the wonders of intermittent fasting as a health benefit. So I I wonder if you could talk more and I'm sure you can, given, given the contents of your book that I have in front of me uh, about that side of it as well. Absolutely. And I I think that now, of course, if somebody says, well, I want to engage in a spiritual practice, but in fact, the only reason you're doing it is because you need to lose 40 pounds. That I think would that be a, a wrong approach. On the other hand, I also think it's the wrong approach to pretend to say that these have to be separate things, because I think human well-being involves our bodies and our minds and our souls and our wills. And um, and so if this is a really important thing that we're supposed to do, I, I would say it, I don't think it should be surprising to us that there are. There's social and health benefits, just as there probably there's data that you know a prayerful life tends to make you less anxious. That shouldn't be yeah. that's not impious to point that out or to even look at the research on it. And that's what's funny about fasting because it just as most Christians in the West abandoned it, suddenly you know biohackers in California picked it up as <laughs> as a <laughs> you know a fitness strategy, and it's all it's yeah. about the spent these metabol- metabolic effects in in the first place is that um, it can be used believe strangely enough to reverse type two diabetes. It can certainly be used to change your body composition. So most diets focus on. Um, reducing the amount of food you eat, but not literally reducing the frequency in which you eat. In fact, that's usually Mm -hmm. considered a bad idea because the assumption is that your metabolism slows down and you should do that. Turns out Mm -hmm. that's not true. Um, The mental clarity that comes from fasting. This is how I stumbled on it, actually. I had to have a medical procedure and go 36 hours without eating. And that, at the time, for me, that was unimaginably long. I thought, this is going to be deadly. But I had been eating a low-carb diet. And I went to work out right near the end of that. And I felt this, first of all, I was really strong and energetic. And my Mm -hmm. mind was really clear. It was like some kind of euphoric feeling that you get at the top of a mountain. 
And I thought, this is the weirdest thing. And so, of course, I did what any red-blooded American would do is I Googled the effects, mental effects of fasting. Yeah, right. Turns out there's a whole literature on it. At the time, it was sort of fringe at the time I was doing it. And, you know, you didn't really talk about it in polite company. It's now considered, well, it's kind of extreme, but interesting. And so, you know, the we're moving into the, the point where this is going to, I think, be a kind of a popular thing. And I, to me, that's an opportunity. That's why Jason Fung, Dr. Jason Fung, who wrote the, the foreword, he's one of the, the medical gurus on this. And But he's just written on the physical and the dietary effects of this. And so when I asked him, could you do the foreword? He said, well, I'm so glad somebody is connecting the spiritual stuff. He said, I couldn't do that. But of course, that's every major religion does this. And that's what I wanted to do. There are lots of good books about the spiritual practice of fasting. The one yeah. thing connect the theological tradition uh, with with all the new science, and that's really what I wanted to do in this book. How would you recommend fasting to someone who's never done it? I, and in particular, this kind of you know um, total fast, intermittent fast yeah. um, for both spiritual and health purposes. Where do they start? What should they do? They don't jump right into it. Just as if, uh, you know, think of sort of what I call lifestyle fasting, where it becomes a permanent part of your life and you fast at different time resolutions throughout the year. Um, you don't, if you're going to say do a Holy Week fast from good, you know, from Holy Thursday till Sunday morning, um, you don't start with that any more than you said, I, I want to run a marathon. I think I'll run a marathon tomorrow if you're not jogging. It's the same thing. And so that's why I actually set up a six-week plan attending to all these metabolic things. And so I'm absolutely convinced that it's actually, but in order to develop lifestyle fasting, you sort of have to readjust your metabolism so that it's optimized for that. And so there's some difficulty at the beginning. And so actually in the six-week plan, I have people start by eating a so-called ketogenic diet, which means a diet that's really high in fat, really, really low in carbs and moderate in protein. And the whole purpose of this is to get that fat ketone pathway, that, you know, that other tank in your, in your hybrid system up and running. So by doing that, you start by eating that way. And then the second week you start narrowing the time window in which you eat. So you narrow it for, let's say you probably eat from the minute you get up till you go to bed, maybe 15 or 16 hours a day. You reverse yeah. that and you eat in an eight hour window. And then you go 16 hours without eating. That includes being asleep. Then the third week you narrow that to four and then the next week for a few days, you just eat all of your food within an hour. Believe it or not, you can eat all the calories you need in a single hour. Um, yeah. And then, then it's not until the next week that you actually um, will start reducing. So you just eat one very small meal um, a couple of days of that, during that week. And then in the sixth week, you're really ready to... Uh, to jump beyond that. And it's really the 36 hour mark. That's that that's the kind of high hurdle for people. Cause what that means is you go to sleep. Usually you'd go to sleep, say on a Thursday night, and then you go all day Friday without eating. And then it's Friday night. You still haven't eaten. And this is the hard part yeah. going to sleep that next second night. Yeah. Yeah. The next day, once you've gotten over that hump though, um, longer fasts, are popular are, are really possible and now you're adapted to doing it so it's not any really any big deal and then you can i lay out a sort of suggestions for how you can then embed that in your practice going forward and if you're christian the book's written really for christians embed it in the church calendar that's the easiest thing to do it's provided for you but i do think that actually going 
you know, a period of time without any food as opposed to just the sort of limitations of food have lots of benefits. And that's, that's just, that's what the early church did. The early church just didn't eat on Wednesdays and Fridays. And then what happens is that's sort of hard. And so over time, you say, okay, you can have some vegetables after dinner, after sunset or whatever. Yeah, I yeah. really think there's wisdom in that couple of days a week, at least go 24 hours without eating. And you start tapping into these other benefits, including many that I haven't even mentioned. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I know for me, that was, that was a, a big difference in that you would think, because uh, the reputation is, oh, the Orthodox Church, they're really hardcore about this. And they are in some ways. You know, I'd say about half of the days of the year are fast days, if you really add them all up. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the other hand, as an evangelical, it was like all or nothing, right? Yeah. It was fasting was was mm-hmm. eating nothing, right? And there there wasn't a like uh, a way to kind of wade into the pool, if that made sense. Yeah, and so um, I, I think that's where you can kind of run into trouble too of people trying to go zero to 62 fast. Uh, again, to use a Fast and Furious reference. Uh, <laughs> that's good. We've <laughs> of, uh, overloading their car. Yeah. Yes. Um, there's got to right. be some some book title that is a riff on Fast and the Furious about fasting, but I, I haven't <laughs> yeah, found I'm it yet. I'm frustrated <laughs> that hadn't occurred to me, you know. <laughs> uh, but you're right. I mean, I talk about so this is what's funny is that among evangelicalism. So my wife and I were family or is Catholic now, but we were evangelical mm-hmm. for a long time, and um, we tried it a couple of times. I remember there's a time in the '90s where Dr. Bill Bright of Campus Crusade for Christ was encouraging Christians to fast for 40 days and had a plan for doing that. And so lots of people tried this and that tends to be the pattern. So it's not true that evangelicals don't fast. It's that they, it tends to become a craze sporadically in individual churches or movements. And it's often, as you said, it's like this thing, okay, I know a church that is three weeks at the beginning of every, of every year, starting on, on New Year's day. Mm. Which is, in a sense, it's awesome, but in another sense, it's like, wow, you know, if that were yeah. going without food, not a lot of people could do that. And it would be brutal if you weren't uh, yeah. adjusting to it. And so that's why I think the wisdom of the early church on this, I think, still holds up really, really well. And what the early Christians didn't know that we know is that there are actually these these physiological benefits to this. Yeah, I, I remember um, St. John Cassian in his conferences, he went around interviewing all these hermits in the Egyptian desert. And uh, you said they actually didn't have any like set uh, one rule of how they fasted in terms of what did they give up or what did, you know, when and when did they do it, all that sort of things, although they were all quite, quite austere. Uh, but he said the one commonality was they would eat uh, and they would always leave a little hunger. Hmm. I always like that as well, that if you want to get started, start by just leaving a little bit of hunger. Don't eat until you're totally you know, full and you can't stuff right. anymore. And you, you, which I, I understand. I, God blessed me with a very, you know, the, the metabolism of a squirrel basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I can like yeah. eat, eat a whole pizza and it won't affect me at all, but, or at least it won't look like it affects me. I'm sure yeah. health wise it actually does. But, um, but you know, it's, it's good advice for everybody. Cause it, it's just that first step of saying no first step of actually not even no, but saying enough. Right. Getting getting that mentality of, wait a minute, wait a minute, this is important, but this does not need to rule my life and, and my oh, priorities. Right. Yeah. And you get used to that. And that's what like sort of widening the window in which you don't need is you just spread it out just to go a little longer than you normally would and work your way up. That's the general rule is that you just build up to it. Don't jump right in. Now, I do think it's something to like really switch over to a what I would call a fasting lifestyle. I think it takes 
it takes about six weeks. That is sort of co- you know, maybe coincidence or not. About the length of Lent is about yeah. how long it takes to actually pull this off. And uh, that's really a neat thing. And I think that, you know, again, I don't really think that's a coincidence. You've got these seasons of Advent uh, Mm -hmm. and Lent. And then the Orthodox also have this other um, sort of apostles, Peter and Paul, fast in the summer, uh, Mm -hmm. which is also interesting. And if you think about it, those sort of, they tend to correspond. They're they're punctuated. I mean, this is, I think Mm -hmm. that that, that's, that's the way the church calendar is. I mean, so imagine you have a type of fast each day in which there's times when you eat, times when you don't. It's a type of fast in each week. If you go Wednesdays and Fridays with the fast, there's a feast, a little mini feast every Sunday. And then you have Mm -hmm. these larger seasonal fasts that are Mm -hmm. at a different time scale. And so you have this kind of overlay of different time scales and fasting. So that the praying, pray and the fast and the liturgical calendar and salvation history, it's all just, they're all connected, you know. And if you're in a community that's doing this together, all the better, you know. We, we've lost mm-hmm. that. Maybe it'll be possible that if enough Christians become aware of the church calendar and start doing this, that you know, millions, millions of us are doing it simultaneously, which I think would be amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Another one we have is the first two weeks of August uh, leading up to assumption in the west uh, we yes. call it dormition but uh same same feast um yeah and it's it's something that you kind of get these regular reminders too fast and then these also something to direct your attention towards right so it's not just the negative aspect of the fasting but here's something positive uh here's here's that other side that prayer um okay so i have a few random kind of fun questions at least i think they're fun um You've written about a lot of things in the past. You've written about economics, politics, uh, environment. Um, yep. I'm wondering about, you know, how how broad does this go? How you know? So actually, I'll start with one that I know that you do cover in your book. Um, in Isaiah 58, uh, the Lord reprimands the people of Israel not for not fasting, but for mm-hmm. fasting wrongly, in particular because uh, they they're fasting, but they're not connecting it with the third most common ascetic practice after prayer and fasting, but almsgiving. So what's the relationship between fasting uh, and almsgiving, or maybe more broadly, uh, care for the the poor and the needy? Those are all connected. Um, and it's, as you said, I didn't mention that a minute ago, just because I didn't want to bring in another topic, but it's really yeah. prayer, fasting, and almsgiving. And that yes. is traditional, not pairing, but tripling, right? These three things yes. together. And so if, in many ways, prayer is where we orient ourselves toward God, Fasting is a kind of orientation of the self to our bodiliness, and almsgiving is our orientation to the other, to, to love our neighbors. And that's what I think is actually going on there. Um, and, and so that this is the sort of problem. I mean, because fasting and prayer itself, weirdly, we, we have ways of perverting everything. And so those can be, um, as Protestants would say, they could be a source of works righteousness, where we think, well, we're... Yeah. You know, it's like a formula where we're earning favor with God, not in the sense that his righteousness is working through us, but we're sort of doing something to manipulate God. Yeah, transactionally. Uh, yeah, yeah, transactionally. So we just yeah. manage to pervert what is otherwise an amazing thing. And that's what I think that is, that's what's happening there is that, okay, first of all, if you're almsgiving, you're giving to the poor. And so the implication, it's not the same as giving a gift to your spouse, which is nice, but also your spouse can give you gifts and you, yeah. there's benefits to being nice to your spouse. It's a state right, right. Giving to the poor is in, in a sense, it's giving to someone that doesn't have anything to give you. And so it really is other directed in a, in a different sort of sense. And so that's what I, I think is happening there. And it's, we, we know that 
it's just funny that, okay, we know almsgiving is important and giving to charity usually is that that's the context in a modern era, either giving to church or giving to charities. Um, and we know that prayer is important, but this, what the heck happened to fasting? That was what to me is the kind of central mystery because it was just as central um, in a Christian practice, you know, all the way up. Now, there was this complicated battle between Catholics and Protestants, and some Protestants thought, well, this is a popish thing, so they didn't like it initially. Yeah. But that's not what's happening in the modern era. There's, not, there's no sense of that. Christians sort of know it's a Christian practice. And so I really do think part of it is just that it's our spiritual sloth, but I also do think it's this kind of mundane things that food's abundant, uh, we can eat it all the time. And so we've we've gotten ourselves in a physical situation where it's just so dang hard uh, that, that we don't do it. It's not that yeah. much more complicated. <clears throat> yeah. Well, and I think in a, especially in an ancient agrarian, largely agrarian world, if you wanted to obey the commands to, to feed the needy, you had to feed yourself less. Right? Right. There, there wasn't a lot of abundance to go around. That's so right. unless you consume less, you aren't going to have anything to give. Thankfully, we don't quite live in that situation today. But I, I think the the connection between those sorts of things is uh, still morally relevant in that I should if if I'm consuming less, it enables me, you know, to to have solidarity with those who are suffering and to, to look outward uh, as soon as I, I'm saying no and enough to myself. Well, hopefully I'm looking around and saying, well, what about everybody else, right? Not just, not, sure. of course, first of all, what about God? But second of all, what about my neighbor? Well, and Dylan, well, that's also true with fat, with the feasts. So if you think about it, yes. yeah. if you're going to have this uh, feast day where everybody's supposed to have just a huge amount of food, and you're going to have this banquet. Well, you know, you're barely your subsistence farmer. You're barely getting by. The only way to pull that off is actually to eat very modestly leading up to the feast and to fast. So you can see how in some ways... This, whereas it, for most of history, necessity trained people's metabolisms and habits in a way that made this sort of a natural and easy thing to do. For us, it's it's very much an act of the will in which we do it voluntarily. And it, it, because there isn't now a kind of a simple connection, we've uh, there's enough food for those of us that are, you know, moderately well off that, that this never really comes up. And so we sort of ha we have to will it. Um, and I, I honestly think this is maybe this is the thing that's that's missing. This is the thing that's that's preventing the church from being able to have an amazing renewal is that we just there's this major tool in our toolbox. It's dusty and we've forgotten how to use it. And, you know, why don't we try? At least let's try it. It's worth trying. Right. Maybe this is the thing that we're missing. Yeah. So, OK, so now we've we've touched a little bit on uh, how fast relates to love for neighbor. Uh, this might be a bit too pie in the sky, but I'd love to hear you take a stab at it. Uh, what does fasting matter for economics or economic liberty or economic well-being and flourishing? Hmm. See, it's funny that you said this because I had a section in the book where I talked about how, because, you know, in Catholic circles, we'll often do this thing where, you know, I was looking for other people that promoted fasting. And what it was is this kind of, highly simplistic idea that, well, if I don't eat, then that's a meal saved that I can give to someone else. But of course, yeah. you know, most of the food we eat, we produce. And so it's not this kind of simple zero sum game. It's like, oh, good. There's one loaf of bread more now, because you know, right. And so I realized, oh no, that's kind of simplistic. But I decided that was getting, that's like, I'm wandering into my econ stuff that I like, but I didn't want people to think that 
just by fasting, you're going to be feeding people in sub-Saharan right. Africa, right? It's like the problem, it's a different yeah. problem. So don't fool yourself. Um, at the same thing, I, at the same time, I do think it helps us sort of orient ourselves, honestly, about abundance. That's what I think in some ways, a kind of an appreciation for abundance, but also the trade-offs with it. So it, it, economically, you could think of abundance as just a, a good, right? But economics also ought to remind us that there are opportunity costs and there are trade-offs. And so this is a perfect example of that. Uh, having food abundance is good because we don't have to worry about food and food's a good thing and our well, physical well-being is a good thing. On the other hand, it um, for, we can eat too much, which has all sorts of really bad physical consequences. Uh, uh, gluttony is itself a, a, a sin. It's one of the seven deadly sins. And it actually makes it really hard to fast. So it's actually our blessed abundance is one of the reasons it's so hard for us to fast. And so that's one of these things in which yeah, in most intents and purposes, food abundance is a good thing, especially for people that don't have it. But once you have it, it comes with trade-offs that you have to real. Then you got to deal with that. And so, in some ways, I can remember. I think Acton maybe it seems like did an ad about this at one point. There was a woman from Africa saying she couldn't wait for the day in which obesity was a problem in her country. And her point was that sort of, you know, yeah, first world problems. At the moment, they're just trying to get enough calories. But but that, that's right, is that we never reach this, this side of the established kingdom of God, this kind of utopia. We improve things, but even in the process of improving things, uh, we create other problems we have to deal with. Yeah, I think it's it, there's an interesting, I don't know if irony is the right word, but... Uh, interesting relationship to having our needs met and somehow then losing the capacity to be thankful, mm -hmm. right? That, that, I mean, thankfulness is one of the most basic uh, responsibilities of created beings, right? That God is providing for every need. Uh, but then when we're provided for, that's when we seem most blind uh, to that goodness. Uh, when it's just all around us, when it's the water in which we swim, um, we don't think to stop and say, wow, this is, this is really amazing. We're really blessed to have this. Uh, well, any any further thoughts? Anything that you know maybe I missed in terms of our discussion of your book that you really think uh, we got it? We got to get it out there. This is really going to get people to want to pick it up and read it and order it <laughs> off of Amazon or wherever. Yeah, the only thing I'd say is another interesting uh, physical benefit of fasting that we did not talk about is that our bodies have these two modes. There's a kind of go mode, which in which you know it's using energy and it needs to do stuff, and then there's a rest and repair mode. Uh, in which your cells go into this state called autophagy, which means self-eating, in which your cells actually repair themselves and recycle. Well, guess what the single signal for your body is that tells it whether to be in the go mode or the re recycle and repair? It's food coming in. And we know, we know now that fasting actually will put your body, now you got to go a while without eating to do this, but it will put your body into that uh, uh, autophagy cycle in which it starts repairing itself. And so that's the moment this is, you know, it's, we don't, we're still learning what all this means, uh, but I'm absolutely convinced that we function better and that some of the diseases that we associate with modern life, um, obesity, type two diabetes, heart disease are in part a result of not ever allowing our bodies to go into this state, which we would have done naturally for most of human history. So yet again, we have this kind of discordance against the benefits of modern life um, and our physical and our spiritual well-being. And that's what that's what makes this, this subject, I think, so interesting and exciting. Well, thank you so much for your timely book on this very timeless subject. 
Uh, I'm joined uh, once again by Jay Richards. Uh, thank you for being on Action Line. Great to be with you, Dylan. As always, thank you for listening. Our team loves putting this podcast together for you. It's encouraging to hear from our listeners. Feedback is incredibly important to us because it lets us know what you'd like to hear more of, including the kinds of topics you're interested in most. If you have comments, feedback, or ideas for a show topic or interesting guest, you can email our team at producer at acton.org. Until next week, for Acton Line, I'm Gabriel Zhajan.